Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 24th, 2017. This is episode 2103 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. We have a standalone Just Jack show. It came out of what I was going to do uh, for the final segment yesterday. and just decided it was too deep a subject to do as a segment, especially with as long as yesterday's show went. We're going to talk about business model innovation equaling disruption today. And if you don't think this is a survival topic, you're not paying attention to what's going on in the world, and you don't understand what's about to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, we're going to talk about three specific areas today. We're going to talk about energy. We're going to talk about automobiles, and we're going to talk about automation within the automobile sector. And those three alone are going to create a tremendous disruption. And they're going to actually, I think, displace a lot of people from employment. And they will create more jobs, but I think they'll lose more than they'll create. So there'll be a, there will be new jobs and new opportunities created by this, but the overall net will be a loss. That's just one part of this today. There's a lot of good to come from it as well. This comes from a presentation by a guy named Tony Seba, who uh, was this presentation was sent to me by a listener, and I listened to it. I do not completely agree with what this guy's presenting. In fact, um, I disagree somewhat deeply on some of the timelines. I think they're overly optimistic. I'm actually going to lead off when I get through the housekeeping with a rebuttal by John Pugliano, our own John Pugliano, who's actually much more harsh on it than I am. I, I think the truth lies somewhere between, but I'm going to present to you some of the claims that Seba makes, and I'm going to explain to you what I think they mean when they eventually happen, because I think the only question is not will they happen, but when will they happen? And I think his timeline might be a bit accelerated. Um, but what it means as these things occur to us as individuals, as far as creating opportunities and, and creating disruptions. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is the place to get lots of ammo for a good price, and that's what you got to do. you got to make sure you stock up on ammo, because I'll tell you what, whenever they start talking about grabbing guns, do you know what goes off the shelf faster than guns? The ammo. I, you know, I just saw like high availability of 22 long rifle in Walmart last week. It was the first time I saw that in years. Years! It, 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 it was you know, not available for And I think it makes sense to stock up on ammo because the stuff lasts forever. We're preppers, and the first things you store are the things that store the easiest and the longest. And I'll tell you what, ammo has value in just about all situations. And if you have guns, but you don't have ammo for it, you have overpriced clubs. So get on over to BulkAmmo.com today, check them out, and get stocked up. And remember, they do offer a discount to members of the MSB. Next up today, JM Bullion. Precious metals, guys, and we just talked about the other precious metal, which is copper jacketed lead. What about the real precious metals, silver and gold? Look, I'm big into cryptocurrency. I really think it is one of the great things about our future that we are decentralizing banking. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to cash in all my silver and gold for bitcoins and Ethereum. 
No, I believe that cryptocurrency offers yet another place for diversification, but I'm keeping the same recommendation that I've had on silver and gold since I started this show back in 2008. 5-10% to of your net wealth should be in silver and or gold. I believe they are the truly anonymous form of wealth. They can be transferred generation to generation with nobody knowing what's going on. They have thousands of years of history of, of retaining value and being used as currency. And I'll tell you what, they're still digging it out of the ground, but they ain't making any more of it. We kind of know how much there is. There's a specific amount in reserve. There's a specific amount that's out there. And silver, in addition to being a precious metal, is used in a lot of industrial uses with what's called an inelastic demand. And what that means is if the price of silver doubles, then when they make the next iPhone, they're still going to use silver in it. They're not going to change for that small amount of silver that goes in there. But that silver that gets used in an iPhone or an iPad or a computer, and in medical usages and things like that, it's what's called unrecoverable. It's just not, you can't go get it back. So we're taking a precious commodity and we're actually using bits of it and reducing the overall available supply. So I think it makes sense to invest in silver and gold. And it's the reason I, I, I work with Jam Bullion is because they have personal level of service but better pricing than like the really big silver uh, houses like Monex and Atmex and stuff like that. And I occasionally actually he hear from them. Uh, and other Lear Capital I've heard from recently that want to sponsor the show. I've turned them away because until I have the, 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 the name and personal email of either the CEO or the president, I'm not even talking to them. With J.M. Bullion, I know the president's name. His name is Michael. And if I want to email him, I can send him a personal email, and I will hear back from him within an hour. And yet this is a company doing millions of dollars of business all over the world, and they've been with us as a sponsor for like six years now. So yeah, I'm loyal to them. You should be too, on price and service alone, but on the fact that they've backed us, that's just an addition. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Remember, on your purchases of $300 or more, they do offer a discount to members of the MSB, and guess what? Free shipping on all orders at jmbullion.com. Next up, let's take a look at this year in history. We have the year 67 that we're up to this year. I have one for you today from David Verne. Vespian begins to retake Judea. Vespian, an experienced general and statesman, has been called out of retirement by Nero and is sent to end the Jewish revolt. By June, Vespian is ready to begin the campaign with an army of 60,000 and is joined by Titus, his oldest son, who brought extra soldiers from Europe. The Romans march on to Jalapa, uh, the headquarters of Joseph, Josephus, a 30-year-old priest who commanded the rebels in Galilee. After a brutal 47-day siege, a deserter told Vespian that the city guards slept early in the morning. Titus leads a small force that scales the walls and opens the gates. The Romans kill a reported 40,000 inhabitants and enslave another 1,200. Josephus is spared and will be used as a translator by Vespian for the remaining of the war. After the war, Josephus will write several histories and will provide an eyewitness account of the war. By winter, all resistance in the north of Judea is crushed, and 100,000 Jews have been killed or sold into slavery. My take by David Verne. It speaks volumes about the skill of Vespian that he was put in command, as he was forced into retirement after committing the grave crime of falling asleep during one of Nero's liar performances. He will continue his campaign in the spring, but in midsummer, an unexpected message from Rome will halt progress. Nero had committed suicide, and the governor of Hispania, Galpo, was now emperor. 
Next year isn't the year of four emperors. That will be in 69 A.D. Yeah, things fixing to blow up in ancient Rome. Um, this is one of those things that when you, you sit back and you look at it in its entirety, you, you may think, well, it's what happened, but it doesn't really have any lessons for us in modern day. I think the lesson here is when you're being besieged, you don't have your guards sleep early in the morning. You have to have people awake at all times. Um, we used to, When I was in the military, we would have certain percentages when you're in the field. A certain percentage of soldiers had to be awake at all times and on guard and ready and ready to sound the alarm and the alert and ready to defend the position um, it, you know, until everybody else could get up and get going. And that might be a 50% uh, in a, a situation where you have a high likelihood of contact you know, down to maybe a 10%, but there was always, if there was a, if there was something going on, if the bad guys are out there, you had to have some people awake at all times, man. That's, uh, that's kind of shocking to me and, uh, that, that you'd have a siege going on. But I guess it's the nature of siege warfare that people just kind of settled into it after a while and thought, okay, this is the way it's going to go for a while. And, uh, makes me think of, uh, trench warfare in World War One. Um, anyway, guys, uh, hope you enjoyed this uh, history episode, and I hope you enjoy the Survival Podcast. If you do enjoy this show, remember you can always support us by joining the MSB. You get discounts on a lot of great services and products that you'll probably be buying anyway, and your membership will more than pay for itself. If you want to become an MSB member, just cruise on over to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. Sign up. Check out all the discounts you get. Make sure you take advantage of them. And remember, it comes out of supporting the show you listen to every day at about 18.3 cents per episode. All right, before we uh, get into this topic today, I want to do just a real quick shout-out about what happened with Crypto Gulch. Uh, basically, you guys broke Ben's site, and uh, that's impressive because Ben's running a dedicated server. Uh, it is a WordPress-driven site like the Survival Podcast, and I, I guess it was just the sheer number of people hitting F5, 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 trying to get in early, etc., and... Uh, It was just impossible. Ben couldn't even get into his own damn site to um, turn the sales on. So what he's done is he's replaced it. There's a form there now. You can go to CryptoGulch.com, fill out a form, and uh, put your name on the form and what have you. And um, he's going to draw 20 names at random probably in 24 hours, and those will be the first 20 customers. And we'll probably keep doing that until things settle down. I mean, we, we knew that it was going to be a lot of interest, but we didn't know it would be this much. So anyway, if you're not familiar with Crypto Gulch, you can go to the website and, and you can just type in Crypto Gulch into my search box. You can see all the stuff we've done about it in the past. But uh, anyway, it's a great opportunity and it's not going anywhere, but uh, the launch is postponed and we're going to do it by a drawing until things calm down a bit. And again, you just go to CryptoGulch.com. And you'll see a web form that you can fill out there and uh, the basic starter package, which is the minimum buy-in. And uh, Ben will be getting in touch with people soon uh, based on who gets drawn out of the drawing. Considering the light amount of marketing we really did around that, um, I think it's a testament to how much interest there is in cryptocurrency uh, and in becoming a, a miner and going into your own business doing that. Anyway, uh, let's get into a totally different type of technology. Let's talk about um, disruption. And, and where we're headed in, in the world. Again, I'll just kind of talk to you about 
what sprung this off. Recently, a listener sent me a video presentation by Tony Seba called Clean Disruption, Energy and Transportation. It really causes one to think a great deal about, you know, when watching this. Again, as I said, I don't feel this guy's 100% right. In fact, in today's, uh, in just a second, I'm going to read for you a rebuttal with harsh criticism by John Pugliano. Um, but I think I fall somewhere in the middle on the three or four things Seba brings up here uh, between Seba and Pugliano. The four factors are the cost and availability timelines for solar electric generation, power storage, which is a nice way of saying batteries, electric vehicles, and autonomous vehicles. And I am going to say, you know, even with my analysis today, it's going to be spot on if Seba is 50% wrong. If he's only half right, um, the disruption is coming. It's just going to take a little longer to get here. Here's what John Pugliano had to say when he watched this video. And um, what I said to him is he may be a little bit over-optimistic, but I would say he is uh, just a few years ahead of his projections. John said, I'm much more optimistic than him, but at the same time I think a lot of what he's claiming is bullshit. Extreme low cost of solar and widespread application. He's cherry-picking data and playing fast and loose with the facts, just like people did with nuclear energy after World War II. They claimed energy would be free. His reference to Pacific Islanders using solar is analogous to aircraft carriers being powered by nukes. It works in a small community and a controlled environment, but it might not work for the entire world. The physics that drove Moore's Law with electronics don't directly apply to solar cells and battery technology. We can't expect decades of exponential growth. It might happen, but I think at some point we'll hit an efficiency wall. He's quick to hate on big oil and identify captured sunk costs like pipelines, but he doesn't criticize the folly of environmentalists and big government nonsense like mass transit and the Paris Accord. If he's right, we'll need less big government than big oil. And that's the part I'm optimistic about. True that electric engines have less moving parts than internal combustion engines, but they don't have less parts than a gas-fed turbine. And that's pretty much my point. I don't think the future is going to be either or. I think we're going to see hybridization of amazing technologies. Much of it decentralized where the consumer market will determine what's best for them, not reliance on big government and big business. Let me say at that point, I think, I think John's got a little of his politics coming in here and making him hate this guy because the guy... He's saying a lot of the same things, and I would say another thing about that is that he's totally talking about decentralization, and all of his numbers and projections involve unsubsidized solar. So he's, he's making his predictions without the involvement, or at least the direct involvement of government monetarily, just saying. Internal combustion engines may become obsolete, but not every motor will run off electricity. I can see the day when a homestead could be powered by a small primary or backup generator that's a turbine fed with either gasoline or natural gas, along with wind and solar on a rooftop and a battery system. Petroleum use for transportation will go down, but there are still plenty of uses for it as an energy source. Technology is driving its cost down, too. It's a raw material for plastics, etc. They can hate on big oil, but it's not going away. Shell oil in the Wolfcap Permian Basin, West Texas, on par with Saudi oil in terms of both quality and cost. In some cases, $5 a barrel at the wellhead. Fracking and horizontal drilling technology hasn't even been applied much outside of the U.S. Just wait till the technology goes global. 
Bottom line, I'm extremely optimistic about the future. In the next 50 to 100 years, we'll see cheaper energy and better technology than ever in the history of mankind. It will disrupt most institutions, government, and corporations. So it won't be a utopia. The economy will be extremely uncertain, but it will be a re renaissance of a liberty-minded entrepreneur. Hope you and I live long enough to enjoy some of it. John, I do too. I hope we live long enough to enjoy a lot of it. Um, I think my projections are ahead of John Pugliano's in you know whether or not we'll live long enough. And I think maybe his optimism about how great it'll be is a little higher than mine. Before I get into some of the claims Seba makes and you know whether I think they're true or not and what they mean, even if they're only partially true, I want to ask you some questions. Uh, right now we know that most people in the United States, do not have solar power on their homes. You might have some kind of little solar gizmo or gadget or charger or what have you, but most, the vast majority, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 98% of single-family homes and apartment buildings, multifamily units in America have no solar providing power to the structure. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2% that do. So, Why? Why don't you have solar panels? If you do, you can ignore my question personally, but then you answer it for your neighbor. Why does the average person not have solar panels on their roof right now? I mean, there's some places where HOAs get in the way and all, but in the end, it's just that's not really the problem, is it? The problem is, you know, taking 20 years to get your money back, maybe 30, maybe never, before it pays itself off, for it, before it's worth what you put into it. And in the reality, American consumers work a totally different way than current solar technology allows for financially. The mindset of I'm going to pay $20,000 today for something that's going to save me $10,000 over 20 years. In other words, it's going to give me $30,000 worth of shit over 20 years, but I'm going to pay $20,000 today. It's completely counter to the American consumer's way of thinking. No, we go out and we buy a car that's going to cost us $60,000, and we pay for it over five years, and we never actually pay it off, and we dump it, and we get another one. So we're used to actually spending small amounts of money over time. And that's where a lot of these solar companies have gone, basically leasing solar panels and things like that. And those things, from every bit of numbers I've ever looked at, is a total ripoff. But it, it comes down, like it doesn't even matter, it comes down to it costs you more money to put solar on your house and generate electricity, then you pay for it from the electric company. That's why. And that varies a great deal by location. For instance, the average cost for a California resident for their electricity is 15.3 cents a kilowatt hour. Right now, today, with storage, solar can compete with that in California. Not really, really well, giving the time payoff, but it can compete with it. And it's only going to get better. Where I live, I just happened to notice as I was on my way into the office to start recording that our electric bill arrived from a company called Amigo Energy. I opened it up, I looked at it, and it said, your average cost per kilowatt hour for last month was 7.5 cents a kilowatt hour. So California, being a highly regulated market, has a high rate of cost for electricity. And Texas 
being a highly unregulated, deregulated market with lots of choice in electrical power, um, has very low rates, seven and a half cents a kilowatt hour. I probably have about the lowest rate you can get in the state of Texas and probably one of the lowest rates in the United States that you can get. If anybody else out there is buying electricity from you know, the electric company, whichever, whatever that means in your area, for less than seven and a half cents a kilowatt hour, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to know what you're paying. Because I'd like to find the floor of this. Because one of the flaws I have with Tony Seba's presentation is he's using a cost of electrical delivery of seven to 12 cents a kilowatt, which is just out of line. It's just out of whack. And there's no way that it's costing the electric company seven cents to deliver my power and they're only making a half a cent a kilowatt hour. They, they couldn't afford to do business that way. So their transmission cost has to be below that. However, it's still down to the same thing. If I can put solar and storage on my home at an aggregated average cost of seven cents a kilowatt or seven and a half cents, even if it's the same price what I'm paying now, I'll do it tomorrow. When I can meet what they're delivering, I'll do it tomorrow because I know that I won't raise my price. And then I'll have more independence on top of it. And, and, and that's just, that's just human nature. And the day that I can put it on my roof for six cents, if I can do solar with storage at six cents a kilowatt aggregated cost, it's, it's a done deal. It costs me less and I get independence. Well, what that means is I, I think the majority of people think that way. The majority of people think that way. Next up, what is the cost so crossover point where everyone will consider an electric vehicle? Right now, electric vehicles make up 2 or 3% of the vehicles in the United States. I'm not, talking, I'm not talking hybrids. I'm talking about you plug it in, it charges up, and it runs on a battery only. It's completely electric. Well, for me... It's when I feel that vehicle will be as reliable and dependable in my daily life as a gas vehicle and will cost me the same or less as a gas vehicle. And I think that's true for most people. Now, I see myself with a large diesel pickup truck for a long time after the majority of people drive electric. Because I don't know that we'll have electric vehicles that will do the type of work that a diesel truck will. But to move people along at you know 50 to 70 miles an hour, I think we're, we're right on the cusp. We're five years out from being able to do it really, really well. And that's something I agree with SEBA on. So I think the electric vehicle gets here long before solar rules the world, which is where he heads to with all of this. Um, <clears throat> then the next thing is, what is the crossover point where you switch to transportation as a service versus transportation as a function of ownership? And what I mean by that is, when do you say, I'm using Uber-like technology as my primary means to get from point A to point B? And I'll tell you when that is. When it costs you less than car ownership, and it's available enough that you know you can depend on it, when you decide, five minutes from now, I want to go out to the store. The minute that happens, you, you might say, I won't, I won't, I won't. And you know what I used to say? I'll never own a cell phone. Why the hell would I want a cell phone? I remember telling, like, I remember walking through a mall, which I haven't been in a mall in 20 years, um, <clears throat> and walking by a radio shack. 
when, when cell phones first started getting really big and they had a, you know, a little, they'd always put a cute girl out there. Can I talk to you about a cell phone? Not unless you can give me your number or something, you know. I mean, it was a long time ago, right? Pre-married Jack, right? That was kind of my response. But my real response was, I have this pager because my work makes me have it. It already messes with my life. Why the hell would I want a phone that goes everywhere that I go? But now, I can't really see functioning in the modern world without a cell phone making sense. It does so much for the cost. Just from the, the, the computing capabilities and the networking capabilities it has, I probably am, am the person that they talk about that uses my phone far less as a phone than anything else. I, I, don't, I don't dial people's numbers. I, I, I seldom talk to people on my phone, voice communications. I do mostly text, email, internet stuff, and use apps on my phone. But I sure as hell have one, so do, so do most people. So even when you say, I'll never do it, it all comes down to, yes, you will. There just has to be the right set of circumstances. And since you don't see those circumstances as probable yet, you don't believe it. I don't want to give up my freedom and my independence and whatever. And I think a lot of people will do, like, you know, me, it'll be a perfect uh, way that I would keep a truck for the work that I need to do that a truck does well. And then that means... If I need to run somewhere and I don't feel like summoning whatever's going to come, uh, I can just take my truck and drive. But, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been out to eat or something like that, and you had a great night, and you got a full belly, and you say, I wish somebody just transport me home. I mean, driving can be fun, but in general, it's a chore. And one of the things that Seba says in his talk is that it costs the average American $10,000 a year to fund their vehicle. All in maintenance, fuel, um, you know, your payments on it, or if you buy cash prorating it out across the life of the vehicle, um, insurance, all of that, ten grand a year. So if, if that's you, and you can reliably use transportation as a service, For $5,000, you put $5,000 back in your pocket, even if it means keeping kind of a little puddle jumper car around just for the occasion that you might want to use it on your own, wouldn't you probably do it? What sticks in our head now with the price of Uber or something like that is, it's that plus I have a car. But if the car expense goes away, it starts to look a lot more reasonable. So I, I, I think we need to be asking ourselves as I go through all this, what is the crossover point where everyone will have some solar and some energy storage on their property? And again, I think that answer is when it costs the same or less as I pay for it from the grid. What is the crossover point where everyone will consider an electric vehicle? The point where they become comfortable with it and the cost is the same. And that's just a, that's just a function of time. And what is the crossover point where people will choose transportation as a service rather than ownership of a vehicle as the way to go? So here's why I believe this is all coming. And, and the biggest reason is smart people that should be able to understand what's going on not being able to see what's going on. There's a guy I listen to on the radio here. I really, really like him. I listen to him on weekends. It's about the only time I listen to the radio anymore. His name is Ed Wallace. He has a show called Wheels. And he is a car guy. He's been in the car business since the 1970s. And he's always been the guy that's on the cutting edge 
of where the industry is going next. This is a guy that when the Internet first showed up, and I'm talking about the real Internet that we know today, the AOL-type Internet, you've got mail, that Internet. He built the first-ever website for the automotive industry that everybody uses today. I mean, everybody uses this today. And that is, you know, pick your car. You know, where like you select like a Nissan Ultima, and then here's your colors, and these are your options, and here's how much it's going to cost. Well, he, he built this, and he was, you know, an automotive industry insider. He had his own show by then. He had run a dealership. He knew everybody in the industry. And he figured this was going to be his big thing because he was going to go license this to all of the, you know, to Chevy, to Ford, to GM, to Toyota and Mazda, and et cetera. And since he had, he had basically taught himself coding and how to do all this stuff, he figured that they would just use what he had instead of developing it themselves. He was laughed out of every boardroom he managed to get into. Every single one. This is what the car industry said. This is like 95, 96, somewhere in there. No one will ever buy a car online, ever. And he knew they were wrong. And history shows that Ed Wallace was right. Now you think about this. He had been in the industry a long time in 1996, so now we're here at 2017, we're 20 years later. He's an older guy. He's more set in his ways. That's how we all get as we age, whether we want to admit it or not. And I was listening to him this week, and he's totally opposed to the reality, not, not, not on a philosophical level, opposed to the reality of autonomous vehicles. He does not believe that we're going to see them anytime soon. He feels this is all overhyped. And he doesn't get why everybody's buying into it. And every company on the planet seems to be somehow attaching themselves to autonomous vehicles. Well, he should be able to see that in of itself. This guy has a track record of being able to see the future. And he's not seeing the future. He's seeing the repetition of the past, which is not what the future holds at this point in time in the automotive industry. And he was talking about this company. I don't remember the name of this company. But they do 3D modeling with cars. So the car drives down the road and it makes a model of the road. It determines like what, where the median is. It builds a three-dimensional map of everything. And Chevy General Motors has this feature already in some of their Cadillacs. And they have, that's like their big thing, that they're developing this technology. Well, they just spent some umpteen million dollars to buy this company that's made up of like 28 individuals that's doing the same thing. And what Ed said was, since they already have this technology, why would they spend these millions of dollars to buy these, this company and absorb these people into General Motors? Well, I want you, if you haven't snapped to it yet, to just think for a minute about why that would be the case. Why would you do that if you were Chevy or, or GM? You're building a technology. You already have it working to a degree. You're rolling it out in your new vehicles. You're tweaking and making it better. Here's a company that does pretty much the same thing, maybe coming at it from a little bit different of a way. You buy them. Now, some people would say, well, they will help you go faster, maybe, but that's not why you buy them. Think like a capitalist. Think like the Monopoly guy, right? 
the little rich guy with the cane and the mustache, think like him for a second. Why do you buy them? You buy them so Ford won't. You buy them so Ford won't. You buy them so Toyota won't. You buy them so Fiat won't. You buy them so freaking BMW won't. You buy them because they're the furthest along with the competing technology to yours. And since it's been developed independently, none of your shit, like your patents and stuff, applies to it. So Ford can have it in their cars tomorrow, so you buy it to keep it out of their hands. Now, friends, Ed Wallace should understand that. There should have been no question in his mind whether he believed the technology is going to work or not. He knows that the GM does. But he should have been able to see that. And I'm seeing more and more people that are smart people, but they're older people and they've crossed the threshold where they can no longer understand change or accept change. And they can't see the most obvious things. And I'm telling you, in my experience, when that begins to occur is when you are at the edge of the exponential S-curve. That's always when it is. It's the same shit with cell phones. People in the communications industry in the 1980s could not see the potential of the cell phone. The very people that should have known the most about what the potential was saw the least of it. In Seba's presentation, he mentions a study that was done. They paid millions of dollars for it. AT&T did it back when they were still like the Goliath. And they, it was 1985, and they wanted to know by the year 2000 how many people in America would have cell phones. So they knew what to do with it. The number? 900,000. Yeah. They missed it by a little bit. I'm just saying. And that's when you know. When the people that should know, don't just write it off, the, the monumentous size of the change but they don't see the obvious things that are, everybody else can tell. Well, here's why this is happening. Or, oh, like, this is going to be big. Even if it's not as big as this, this you know, theorist says, this is going to be big. And like, nah. Same thing with the Internet. Same thing with the Internet, guys. So it's coming. It's just a matter of how fast and how much. Here's some highlights from Seba's presentation. One of his contentions, and it's really his primary contention going through the whole thing, is that anything highly underutilized is subject to massive disruption. So if you have a, an industry that has to build a tremendous amount of infrastructure or computing power or anything that's very expensive to build and maintain, but they actually only use a small amount of it, then it's a ripe target for someone to figure out the efficiency to change that. And as soon as they do, it's a death knell. All right, so, as I mentioned earlier, the average cost to drive a car in America, for the average American, to drive a decent, nice new car, is $10,000 a year. $10,000 a year. That's, that's, that's not his number, that's a, that's a well-known statistic. I know you might drive some hoopty from 15 years ago and it doesn't cost you anywhere near as much. It doesn't cost me that much to drive my car. There's no way. My car's been paid for for seven, eight years, seven years. Seven years my truck's been paid for. Um, I drive it more going hunting than I drive it the rest of the year combined. You know, so it doesn't put any miles on it. The insurance is cheap because I'm old and I don't crash into stuff. So, you know, it doesn't cost me that. But the average American, 10 grand. But the average vehicle sits unused 94 
percent of the time. Think about it. Think about how how much time, how many hours a week does your vehicle spend running? And you have a job like I used to have, it might be a bigger number than that, right? I used to drive about three hours a day on average, and I drove hardly at all on the weekend because I didn't want to be in the car anymore. But that's 15 hours a week. So 15 hours a week, there's 168 hours in a week. So that would be, you can check my math if you want to, but I'm going to say it's about 8% to 9% of the time in a week my vehicle was rolling, which meant that 91 to 92%, it wasn't. So his number of 94% for the average person, I think is spot on. So his contention then is, if you're spending that much money for something, you only use 6% of your life, and someone presents you an alternative, you're going to take it. As long as whatever you're presented is reliable in that 6% window. Now, the next one in the power generation world. Here's what he says. A typical power generation company has a third of its capacity used only 6% of the year. That's not quite as clear. It's not quite as razor thin as the 94% unusage of the American car. But basically, again, let me give it to you. Uh, like this is from Con Edison, New York, that was this exact statistic. A third of their generation capacity, a full third, was only used 6% of the year to meet peak demand. So this is one of the problems with solar and wind. They build these plants on a, what's called a concept of being a peaker. They're peaker plants. That means that when everybody turns on the heat or everybody turns on the air conditioner, they can roll and it can go way, way up in generation capability. And then when everything levels off, they can come back down. And they can go up and then go down and then go up and then go down and go up and then go down. To do that without massive storage, you have to have massive on-demand generation capacity. Any electrical engineer that's worked in power utilities will tell you what I'm telling you is absolutely the truth. Absolutely, this, that's how it works. And what that means is you have to overbuild your capacity, massively overbuild your capacity. And then you have to maintain it. And every time you build a new facility, you have to build that kind of capacity into it. And then it sits there just like your car is right now, unless you're in the car listening to me. But if you're at work listening you know, to the radio at a reasonable level or with your headphones while you're collating, right? if you're doing that and you're listening to me right now, Your car sitting outside. If you're back in your garden and you're listening to me with your phone in your pocket and your Bluetooth headset on or whatever, your car sitting there not being used. Imagine if your car was multi-billion dollars of electrical equipment and you could free up that stranded capital. Would you do it? So those two contentions alone are what drives everything SEBA has to say. And I actually have the whole video embedded in today's presentation. Before I go on with some of the claims he makes, I do want to say this. This is what the man does for a living. This presentation, he's speaking to some renewable energy conference group in Colorado, and everybody cheers when he says the, the internal combustion engine is going to go away by 2030-something or whatever like that. So he's preaching to a choir. He's probably ramping things up a little bit because that's how you get speaking gigs and stuff. But I think his overall assumptions are somewhat valid. Right Again, he could be half wrong, and it's still massive change coming. So 
What he's saying is that one of the first things we really need to be able to make this all work is not so much power generation, because solar power generation exists. Um, it, it, it's more the ability to do storage, because storage opens up so many things. Like Tesla's Powerwall would be an example. And his claim is that storage power for an average home will cost about a dollar a day in just three years by the year 2020. Now, that of course, be prorating the equipment out over time. But basically what he's saying is for the average home to have enough batteries to be able to provide, when they're fully charged, to then power the home for one full day will cost about a dollar a day prorated over time by the year 2020. Remember I said, what's the crossover point where everybody will have some solar? Well, if you start getting battery capacity down there to that number, then, you know, now understand, if those batteries last 10,000 days, that's $10,000 worth of batteries when you prorate it over time. So he's not saying you're going to be able to, you know, pay $30 a month and have batteries, though that might happen. Maybe it would be more, but like leasing of equipment and all, that's, that's one way to change that economic paradigm. Now, what if he's wrong by 50%? What if we won't be able to do that until the year 2023? Don't we still get to the same place? What if we don't get there until 2026? What if he's off by 30%? Is that that far away? What if he's off by 25, like by a factor of 75%? It's going to take you know, 75% longer than he says. Well, we're still to that number by 2029. At that point, when you get there, all new homes will be built with power storage designed into the build of the house. You won't be able to be a builder selling a new house unless it's set up and designed, even if you don't include the batteries. It will have to be like, that's your battery compartment where you put in your, your power walls or whatever. I think it's one of his closer to accurate predictions. So I think we're, we're heading in that direction. Um, he also says by 2022, a 200-mile range electric car will cost about $22,000. So I want you to ask yourself a question. On average... Do you need to drive more than 200 miles in a day? I think the average person would say no. I have, I mean, if you do that, you're driving a thousand miles a week. Again, when I lived in Frisco, lived in Arlington and worked in Frisco, my round trip commute was 110 miles. And people were like, man, I can't believe you drive that much. That must mean the average person is driving less than 200 miles a day. And they, you know, they are building these rapid charge stations because here's an example of when that may not work so well. I just went hunting. It was about a 300-mile drive. Most of it was through kind of like out in the country. You know, you're lucky to find a gas station, let alone a place to plug your car in. So it wouldn't have worked for that. But for the majority of Americans on a daily basis, you make a... 200-mile capable electric vehicle available for $22,000. That's a reasonably nice car, and they're going to buy it. And they might not buy it right away, but when their neighbor buys one, and it doesn't explode in a few weeks, and they finally go for a ride in it, maybe they drive it, and they realize they get that incredible 
acceleration you get an electric vehicle. You just don't get a gas vehicle. It's a totally different way that things work, a different type of power curve. And it's quiet, it's nice, and they don't put any money into gas at all. And, you know, they got those solar panels on their roof that are cutting their electric bill, even if not making it go away. It doesn't cost that much to charge that car up. And they're starting to see things like in the big parking lots at uh, uh, office spaces and stuff like that. They're putting in solar charging stations so your car can actually charge while it's parked there. You know, I think maybe it's time to consider one of those. When you have zero emission mandates from government forcing this on the industry, they'll, they'll come up with enough to balance out their fleets to have enough percentage of them, and that's the only way they're going to do it. That's the only way that they're going to do it. There's no, nothing else is going to be zero emissions. It's, 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 in, it's, it's not possible. They may claim it, but it's not possible. If you burn fuel, something comes out of a pipe. So these cars are coming. The next one is, he says, solar will double every two years, and in 14 years will generate most of the world's power. I call bullshit. I call heavy, steaming piles of bullshit. No, it won't. I hope I'm wrong. I seldom am about things like this. When I look at this, this is where John and I agree. You cannot apply Moore's Law to solar. But to be fair to see, but he's not applying Moore's Law to solar from an efficiency standpoint. So Moore's Law of computers has nothing to do with how many computers exist. It has to do with how fast and how much storage, etc., a computer will have as an average new computer. You know, that will double about every two years. Processing capacity and things like that. It has, it's not about the quantity, but the quality. So Moore's Law is not like, well, if there's... 500 million computers in use in some place today that in two years there's going to be a billion computers. It's about if a computer has a processing speed of X, then in two years it will have a processing speed of 2X. Right? That, that's what Moore's Law is. What he's actually saying with the growth of solar is not that the technology will improve by double every year, but the usage of solar will improve by double every year. And guess what? For the past 20 years, it has. For the past 20 years, it has. And it, but it's gotten us up to a whopping 2%. 2%. 20 years of doubling to get to 2%. But his point is, well, if we're at 2% and we double one more time, we're at 4. We double one more time, we're at 8. We double one more time, we're at 16. We double one more time, we're at 32. Okay, what if we just get there? 32% solar. At that point, has economy of scale kicked in to create the tipping point where almost everybody has some solar on their roof? I would say yes. And I think that very much can grow another 10, 20% in the next two to five years of total electricity generated. Now we're up over half. We take his 14 years to get to half instead of 100%, which I think is insane. It's nonsense. But what does it mean at that point? How distributed does power become? This actually enables that fleet of electric vehicles to work. Because if you do that, and the average American home has uh, power generation capability, 
and power storage capability. And you have a smart grid to go with utility scale on top of that. And at the same time, you scale, the utility scale is going more in the direction of solar and wind. And utility scale is using more and more power storage instead of building peakers, which the C he said something in his presentation that I checked out. CEOs of major power generation companies have been saying he's right that they will probably never build another peaker plant again. That they're done with that business. Because the storage capacity is low enough for them now, it's better for that energy to sit there stored than generation capacity to sit there idle. That's a tremendous change right there. So I think that's what gets you to the point of most people having some solar on their roofs. Because what will happen is it's not about doubling what, solar, what one panel that's two foot by four foot can do. That would be a direct analog to Moore's Law, which is what Pugliano was talking about. That's important, but that's not really what it's about. It's about, can I build that same 300-watt panel for 50% less next year in cost? Don't have to do more. I just have to be able to build the same one for less. Can I improve my manufacturing efficiencies? Can I get rid of people and have robots build it to work 24-7 and don't need health insurance? How many more times can we cut the price per watt in half? That's, that's kind of a reverse Moore's Law looking at it. There's actually a name for it, Solar, but I can't remember what it is now. It's like Samson's Law or something like that, whatever it is. But it's, it's about the cost per watt. That's what it's really about. And then it's not even that. It's that there's a point where if you can drive that cost low enough, you don't have to improve it much better ever again. People will just start buying it. People will just start buying it. There's a cost associated with everything that you buy. And you get to a point where if the, if the cost for the, the service seems fair, as long as you have money, you don't even think about it. That's just a standard cost of living. I don't really think about it when I buy that anymore. And when you get there with solar, that's when you get wide-scale adoption of it at the individual level. And th th then you keep creating this massive economy of scale because that drives the cost lower. So then the utilities use it more, which drive the cost lower. And you're going to see, I don't care, and Stephen Harris is probably going to have his head explode when he listens to this. But this isn't about belief. This isn't about what you believe. This is about what is. And if we look back over the last 30 years, these projections all make sense. I know it sounds really great, but you know we'll get to what it means soon. Then he uses two terms. One I, I, I really think makes a lot of sense. The other one, I don't know where he's getting some of his numbers right now. He says solar will hit grid parity first and then God parity second. Um, he says that right now, across the world, solar will hit grid parity in 80% of the market by the end of this year. Again, I don't know how he's calculating those numbers, and I don't know what it costs for electricity in a lot of other countries. And I'm sure he's amalgamating grit, a utility-scale solar into this, not just individual, because I can't see how, how that happens. Again, for grid parity to work for me in Texas, I've got to be able to generate power for 7.5 cents 
a kilowatt hour off my roof. I can't do it. And I certainly can't do it and put in storage, which is the way to do it right. That's the only way to make it really work. Solar and storage together at eight cents a kilowatt, even a half cent kilowatt more, I'm, I'm a buyer. But again, California is like 15 cents a kilowatt. Hawaii is even higher. Many countries in the world is even higher. So the more expensive your grid power is, the closer you are to grid parity because the less solar has to drop for you to buy it. That makes sense? What he calls God parity is when you get into a situation where, let's say, you can generate and store power for four and a half cents a kilowatt hour. When you can do that, you've pretty much killed the utility companies. They will only exist for people that, for one reason or another, cannot generate enough power. They don't get enough sunlight. They don't get enough wind, whatever it is. They just don't get enough. Or their demands are so high that, they, that, 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 that there's a spatial limitation to how much they can produce. Now, why would that be? His assertion is that that price... You can't transmit the power and make money anymore. If you're generating power with storage at your house for five cents a kilowatt hour, and I'm generating power for zero dollars, but I have to maintain a line that goes to your house, and I have to use equipment to transmit that energy, and people and like there's an expense in transmission, not just generation. Okay, that at that price I can't transmit it and make money. I don't know where he's getting his numbers again because at seven and a half cents a kilowatt hour, the transmission cost can't be that much, or my electric company would be bankrupt. They would be completely bankrupt by now. It is just there's just no doubt about that. But I think the the, the concept is valid. Just is it is it ever possible? I don't know because his point was you know the CERN super collider they ever find the God particle. They ever make zero-point energy where you can literally generate power for zero cost. If you had a magic box that just made energy, but you had to move the energy from point A to point B, the transmission cost is going to be such that if the person making their own power and storage can do it for four to five cents a kilowatt hour, you can no longer make money selling to them. Maybe it's a lower number, but I think the concept is valid. It takes money to move power and not have shit blow up and burn and break down. And then you got to fix it when a storm comes and all that other stuff. Though I'm not, I'm not expecting to see God parody in, in my lifetime. Um, <clears throat> he also says, now I'm telling you, if he's right about this, I just don't see the world in which this is true. The cost of generation on rooftop solar in a good solar area like Colorado, which is a great place for solar, will be four cents a kilowatt hour by 2020. Within three years, you'll be able to put solar on your roof and generate power in a good solar area where you got lots of sun for four cents a kilowatt hour. And the cost of solar plus storage should be about seven to eight cents a kilowatt hour by 2020, three years from now. Three years from now, he's saying, Jack Spirico, you will be able to put in solar with batteries, aggregated cost over time, seven to eight cents a kilowatt hour in three years. Okay, I'm skeptical, but I'm going to tell you this. 
That's my crossover point. That's it. I'm okay. Really? So I'm going to pay the same for the power I make as the power they make for me. Okay, let's let's get started. Let, let's let's ramp up and do 25% of my electrical then. And what am I waiting for at that point? I'm not waiting to have more money. I'm waiting for it to get cheaper because I know the cost of electronic goods goes down and down and down and down and down. And somebody will make a solar panel that's not 50% better, not 100% better. It doesn't have to double in two years. In the next two years, if somebody makes a panel that's 10% better, the cost of the panels on my roof, the legacy panels, is going to drop by 25% or more. And now I'm adding more. And you start to see that this guy could be more right than wrong. Because wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, right now, if you could buy solar with storage for the same, not even less, the same cost as you pay the electric company? If somebody could sit down with you, show you the numbers, and it wasn't 30 years, you know? Maybe it was 10. And by year 10, you completely recouped everything. And everything was free in year 11, basically, other than maintaining your equipment. Now, don't when you get these assholes that are out there saying they can do that right now, when you do the numbers, one guy, Stephen Harris did the numbers for him, was 33 years. 33 years. It's ridiculous. One of the houses my son looked at, they were locked into one of those le leases with uh, whatever that company is, where they're, they're leasing the panels, but it was like a 30-year lease. They can't get rid of them. And when I did the math... I told, I told my son, you'll be paying $90 a month more for electricity because of this. So we're not there. But what I'm saying is, again, if you could buy solar with storage for the same price or less than the grid, would you do it? Would you do it? If right now somebody said, I'll come in, I'll put solar on your house and storage in your house, you'll get a bill just like you always did for it. It'll be yours, and we'll prorate the bill against the purchase of the equipment over time. And in 10 years, you'll own it. But for the next 10 years, you'll pay the same electric bill that you're paying now, or less. And it won't go higher than what you're paying right now. And you will have storage, and you will have panels. And you'll still have grid if you need it. What would you say? I'd say... Get this shit up there. Now, how cheap can we do it right now? Tucson Electric is currently running utility-level solar and storage for four and a half cents. Now, as John Pugliano rightfully pointed out, this guy is cherry-picking his data. It's a freaking desert. They have lots of space. They have a low cost of overhead. Right? They don't have to get 77 permits to be able to put in a big, stank, a big bank of batteries. They can just do it. Cost of labor is low in Tucson, and you got no trees, lots of sun, long days, sun through the summer, sun through the winter. It's optimal. But the fact that they are producing at utility scale solar for 4.5 cents with storage... So don't have to build a peaker plant. 
is a proof of concept that it can be done. If their area is 25% better than the average location, then the technology only need improved by 25%, or the cost only need drop by 30% for everybody to be able to do it. This is the reality that we're coming into. And what it leads to is electric cars, a distributed electrical system, and autonomous vehicles. That sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds like, you know, Buck Rogers and Star Trek and whatever. Yeah, but what does it mean? What does it mean to you and me? I think to really understand what this all means from a standpoint of its impact on us, we have to take a look at it alongside of other things. So we're talking about, no matter how you look at it, driving the cost of power, of energy down. And as you start seeing solar hit these numbers where you would put it in, let me tell you who's going to put it in. Corporations. Large corporations with manufacturing facilities and things like that. They're going to put it in. They're also going to put in more and more electric vehicles to transport product and merchandise from one point to another. And they're going to put it into autonomous vehicles. And you're going to have factories that used to employ tens of thousands of people employing hundreds. Not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, you know, 15, 20,000 person headcount operation, now employing like seven or 800 people. Not all jobs gone, but you can see the problem. And not really being such a great customer to the electric company anymore because they have this giant warehouse covered with very cheap solar panels. That's what they're going to do. These, these corporate, and they're doing it already. They're doing it already. I mean, Amazon is one of the most advanced companies in the world today from a standpoint of automation and the installation of solar for their own facilities. Walmart's done it as well. I personally think, long-term, Amazon's going to put Walmart and the Walmart-style operation out of business. They'll say that for another day. Okay? But that's, that's where I think we're headed. And all of this compounds on top of each other. The individual, by adapting to this decentralized model, becomes more independent yet becomes more dependent because there's less jobs. And what we need to be doing as entrepreneurs, and as just people that want to adapt, even if you're not an entrepreneur, is thinking about what problems remain. Because when people say there'll be no jobs or whatever, I'm like, that's, that's not how this works. We will have things for people to do that will earn them income, as long as there are problems to solve. We just might have less problems to solve or less problems to solve that are best solved with people. But there's tons of work to be done yet to figure out some of our solutions. You know one of our biggest problems right now no one ever talks about? Garbage. Garbage is a massive problem. I mean, I don't think people have any idea how big a problem this is. How big a problem is this here toward the end of the show? Let me play this for you. This is something I caught on the news the other day. Uh, very local to me, as I don't live very far from Fort Worth, Texas. And this is this is what's happening in Fort Worth, Texas, right now. Fort Worth is on track to become one of the largest cities in the nation. The Chamber of Commerce projects that by next year, Cowtown will be the 14th largest city, and by the year 2020, the 12th largest. But more people means more trash, and new numbers reveal the city's landfill could run out of space a lot sooner than they thought. 
Bradley Blackburn reports. Look hard, pinch your nose, and there's beauty at the dump. A messy ballet of equipment, people, and, and garbage. Million dollar machines crunching through waste. This is where Fort Worth's trash takes a final bow. There's a problem. It's filling up far faster than expected. It is tied to the growth trends that we see in the community. A landfill supposed to last 50 years may now cap out in 25. And it's mind-boggling to think that we can even make it another 25 years when you look at the sheer volume of waste that comes in here every single day. All this is just one day of Fort Worth's garbage. And when this landfill is full, it'll be another 100 feet tall. This one just came in from a residential neighborhood. Finding a new dump could cost the city a heap of money. Let's tear open a couple of bags But there are ways to extend this landfill's life. Recyclable, fresh newspaper, recyclable. Dig through, you see how much of it could be recycled. If we went through this and took out the recycle material, this pile is going to be bigger than that pile when you remove the recyclable. They're now asking for your help. And eventually, the city may charge more to customers who don't sort. We will reward those that recycle more. In fact, their rates may not even go up. One solution to deal with waste instead of throwing out money. In Fort Worth, Bradley Blackburn, Channel 8 News. Okay, so the lesson there is where there is a problem, there's an opportunity. And I see some of the things we talk about with automation adding to the problem. It's one thing when every week you go to the grocery store or you go out to a market and buy stuff. It's another thing when you have stuff constantly being shipped to your home. It produces a lot more waste. Most in the form of cardboard and styrofoam, both of which are recyclable. There's probably an opportunity in that alone. What is it? I don't know. It's probably 10. But that's what we need to be looking for to adapt to this. What are the problems that this new world doesn't solve or actually makes worse? And how can we address them? And how can we create our own opportunities for growth in those sectors? And I think I'll leave it here today because I don't know if you can tell, I struggled to get through today's show because I'm having throat issues again. Again, it seems every year, October, November... This type of thing happens to me, and I don't feel like I'm doing my best for you guys, but hopefully I've given you some things to think about today. But we do need to think about what it means that we're going to go through so many disruptions in the next 10 to 20 years. The education sector is going to be massively disrupted. The energy sector, as we discussed today, massively disrupted. The automotive sector, as we discussed today, massively, massively disrupted. Government is going to be massively disrupted. I mean, the whole cryptocurrency thing is just the beginning. Do you understand that that's one of the, the considered essential functions of government? Do you understand that's why government's really losing their shit about this, the cryptocurrency thing? It's not so much some people won't pay taxes. They can figure out ways to raise money from you if they have to, no matter what you're using for money. You're removing one of their essential functions. You need us to create dollars and make sure they hold value. Turns out we don't. Well, when you do that, you start to pull. It's like when you have that, that really little pretty tapestry 
that looks like a beautiful picture, but all it is is a bunch of thread together held together a certain way, and there's really nothing there. It's not really a beautiful scene. It's just a bunch of thread. And one thread comes loose, and you start pulling on it, and you start, and it just starts unraveling. And all of a sudden, you see it's just an ugly wall behind it. That's what government's afraid of cryptocurrency with. But if, if we can replace government's, the need of government to create an accounting system, which is all that money really is, let's, we can do it with something better. Why can't we create means of conflict resolution that are better than what government offers us? Or means of maintaining our local roads. At least our local roads. Can't, can't communities start to say, hey, wait a minute. We're tired of paying all these taxes. But we need to maintain your local roads, county roads, stuff like that. Well, wait a minute. What, what, maybe we can come up with some other better way. Especially since so many of us don't have jobs anymore. <laughs> right? I mean, th this is the world we're headed to. It is a world of fantastic opportunity and terrifying consequences. Let's just for a minute imagine that SIBA was 100% correct. And that by the year 2027, 2032, something like that, that 100% of power is generated by solar. 90% of power is generated by solar. I don't buy it for a second. Just say that it did. How many jobs does that cost? And how many jobs does that cost that aren't even directly in that sector? Jobs that supported jobs that supported jobs that support the jobs that are those jobs. It's like when the when the auto manufacturer closes down in a town, like somewhere in Detroit or one of the suburbs, and then all the parts manufacturers close down, and then the courier services close down. And you see it as a cascade. We're in for some rough shit. We really are. But it doesn't mean we can't get through it. Keep that in mind. Pay attention to what's going on. And give this entire presentation by Tony Seba a listen to. Um, it, you know, today's show is kind of short compared to normal. So if you have some extra time to listen, you know, you don't, have, you don't really have to watch this video. He's got some interesting graphs and all, but you know, 85, 90% of the content can be absorbed just by audio. So check it out. I do have it embedded in today's show notes. You can find it from there and snag a copy if you want to and convert it to audio or do whatever you want to. It's easy to steal content from YouTube. Um, <laughs> if you, if you want one real easy way to strip content off YouTube, just go to ssyoutube.com. SS youtube.com not ss dot just ss youtube.com and uh, you can uh, strip just about anything off of youtube i'll just let you know that anyway um i wanted to uh, remind you guys one of the ways you can help support our show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com of course you can get on over to amazon from there and no matter what you buy you help support the show and the work that we do But at T-Spash, you'll see all of the great reviews that I put up for the individual products on Amazon. I have a great one for you today. I just actually field tested it for the first time. It's made by a company called Outdoor Edge. It's the uh, RB20 Razor Blaze Knife. What this is is basically like a standard 3.5-inch lockback folding knife. What's different about it is the knife is really a frame. And you take these surgical stainless steel blade inserts and you snap one in. You now have a razor-sharp knife to skin your deer or your pig or your elk or whatever with. As you're skinning, you get to the point where that blade is dull. You push a button, you pull it out, you stick a new one in, you're back to a razor-sharp knife. But it handles like a regular lockback knife. It's great for skinning. It's great for you know deboning meat and things like that, and it's always razor-sharp. Price, $35, bucks, and blades come to about $1.60 a piece. Can you resharpen the blades? Is something I've already been asked by email. Yes, it's a blade. You can resharpen it. That's fine. Um, I would say kind of the best way to use these is to have a good sharpening steel with you 
and kind of keep them sharp as you're going so you get through one or two skinning jobs with a single blade if that's what you really want to do. But here's another way to look at that. Skin until it starts to get a little bit dull. Pop one out, put a new one in. Then touch them both up when you're done. You can do that later, not at 9.30 at night in the dark when you're skinning and you want to sit down and eat some sausage and deer heart and drink a beer, and you're still looking at a half-skinned deer that you also have to quarter yet. You know, And I'll tell you, it was interesting. I talked about the hunt I went on yesterday, uh, but there were about 14 people in the camp other than me. I'd say like half, like seven people had this exact knife. Everybody was happy with it. It's become a big thing with hunters anymore. And uh, I met this guy, really cool guy. He was a Ph.D., and he's like, I think I know you. And I'm like, you look familiar to me. And he's, you know, we started talking, and I said, well, I started coming to this place like over 12 years ago. He goes, I might have been a guide back then. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started talking to him about this hunt I went on. He goes, I think I do remember you. Anyway, he was skinning a beautiful Aldad. And if you don't know what an Aldad is, Google Aldad. They're a gorgeous sheep. They call them Barbary sheep as well. It's uh, it's just an amazing animal. Um, so he's skinning this beautiful Aldad, and I said, man, that's a beautiful Aldad. And he goes, I wish I could claim that my uh, godson shot it. And uh, he started talking to me a little bit about what he does and all, and he was like, yeah, I hunt all over the world now. And what he did is he did his he, – he finished his Ph.D., and he was working as a guide while he was finishing his Ph.D. to pay the bills because he loves to hunt. Well, after he got out of school with his Ph.D., he went to work in doing research on cancer and adult stem cells. And he developed a, a technology to develop stem cells from something, I don't know, like to basically create stem cells for cancer treatments. And as a developer, he had the patent on it. He sold it to Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and he's done. He is the American dream. He has no need to work anymore for the rest of his life. He said he spends a couple hours a month making sure his investments are well, and he hunts. This guy hunts everywhere. He just come back from, I think, Uzbekistan or something like that, and like one of the most challenging, uh, Tazakistan, right? Tazakistan is one of the most, supposed to be the most challenging sheep hunt in the world. Hunted in New Zealand, he's hunted in Russia, South America, Africa. Like this guy pretty much hunts and hangs out at his house. That's all he does anymore. And he had this exact knife, which he wasn't using. It was sitting in a gutting cradle. I'm not going to explain what that is. You probably know if you're from Texas and a lot of other places don't use them. And he's using this other knife. And I can tell it's kind of getting dull. And he's being very careful with this tape. And I realize it's because he's. it's very important to him that this come out really nice for his godson. He's going he's to get this mounted for his godson. Because this is like... This is like a once-in-a-lifetime Aldad. This is like a, a record book Aldad. And, uh, in fact, he said, he said he doesn't even get it yet. They're like, you're as likely to shoot this as a 200-class whitetail. That's, that's how, you know, how exceptional this is. I said, I, I see you have that knife there. He goes, yeah, they're great, but I forgot to get extra blades like an idiot, and that's dull now. I said, I have that same knife. You want a blade? I thought he was going to hug me, right? He's like, yeah, that would be great. So I go and I get him a blade. He pops it in, finishes up. We keep talking. But my point is, here's a guy that's worth millions of dollars, travels the whole world hunting, and what does he carry to skin game with? A $35 knife with disposable blades. Why? Because it effing works. That's why. 
And that's why I'm recommending it as today's item of the day. Again, it's called the Outdoor Edge RB20 Razor Blaze Knife. In the PS, I have another knife that's kind of a competitor. It's, uh, it's called the Havilon Piranta. And I considered both of them. I did not buy the Havilon. I went with the Outdoor Edge, which is the one I'm recommending. I do have links to that so you can look at it too. The reason I considered the Havilon is even though it costs a little more out of the gate, um, the blades are like half the price. But the blades are like kind of these little scalpel-looking small narrow blades, and it doesn't really handle, in my opinion, like a typical knife that you're used to. So you can look at both of them and make your own decision if this fits for you. But if you hunt and you skin game, I'm going to tell you I think this is money well spent. You can also use this for anything you'd use a standard folding knife for, and it'll always be sharp. The steel they make the disposable blades out of is a perfect uh, steel, though, for disposable blades. Uh, it is a, I'm sorry, it's a, a 4, 420J2, which is a great steel used by a lot of knife makers, but not for blades. It's highly resistant to corrosion and rust, very, very much. So they make diving knives out of it, and they make like liners and things like for folders and locks and stuff like that out of it. But they, nobody, nobody that's really good uses it as a blade steel because it doesn't hold an edge well. But it is easy to sharpen. The other place it's used is in scalpels. So when you see a doctor do a surgery, you think, well, that, well that's a scalpel. It's got to be really valuable. They, basically, scalpels come sealed. The guy does one surgery with them, they throw them away. Because they've got to be perfect every time. And, you know, you don't want the same scalpel being used on the next guy, that type of thing. Um, so it's a perfect steel for a disposable blade. Uh, the other thing I didn't like about the uh, the Halveron is, and there was a guy at the hunt that had both knives, and he showed me his Halveron. He liked that it was easier to clean, but it was harder to change the blades out. And he's like, I can see if you're not careful cutting yourself, changing these blades out. The only good thing he had to say about it is it was easier to clean. Well, since it uses a disposable blade, and it, again, the blade locks in. It looks just like a standard folding knife when the blade's locked in. So you push a button, you can pull that blade out. It's got like a little J-hook at the end that hooks into the frame. And it does get like tallow and stuff up inside it. But since there's no blade in it, you just take the blade out, throw it in the dishwasher. It comes out perfectly clean. It gets it out of the line, gets everything. So, you know, I'm usually not on putting knives in a dishwasher, but there's no blade in it when you do that. So personally, I think the Outdoor Edge is a better deal for $35. And again, you're talking about a multimillionaire that travels the world hunting. What's he carrying? A $35 exchangeable blade knife. There's a reason. It effing works like everything else that I recommend. Remember, you can get uh, that product and the review on it and all the information on it at tspaz.com. And you can always support the show when you do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. And again, um, this weekend was the 40-year anniversary of the Bat Out of Hell album by Beatloaf. Well, to me, still one of the greatest albums of all time. And an album that's continued to win fans who now listen to it who weren't even born when it was made in 1977. You know, my son loves Meatloaf, but he wasn't, he was born in 89. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me. And that's, that's why I think how you really gauge something success. Here's some info on uh, the song from songfacts.com of today. And, and today, again, is you took the words right out of my mouth, which is the second. 
um, song off the Bad Out of Hell album. We're going to play all seven songs from that album in a row uh, through this week and two days next week. It says, like all songs on Bad Out of Hell, this was written by Jim Steinman, a songwriter-producer with a very theatrical style that comes through on this track. Like Paradise by the Dashboard Light, you took the words right out of my mouth as a story of young lust, but with a far more satisfying ending for our hero. Set on a hot summer night under the moonlight on a deserted beach, he finds himself so entranced with his flame that he can't even say the words I love you as he's overcome with desire. It's a song of pure passion, which is classic Steinman. Other songs he wrote include Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, and It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Celine Dion. The album version of the song contains a spoken intro on a hot summer night. Would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? That's not Meatloaf. The male voice is Jim Steinman, and the woman is Marcia McLean, an actress who played D. Stewart on the soap opera As the World Turns. Steinman wrote the dialogue for his stage production, Neverland, which was performed five months before the Bat Out of Hell album was released. Three songs he wrote for the play were used on this album. The title track, Heaven Can Wait, and All Revved Up With No Place To Go. This was the first single released from Bat Out of Hell, which was Meatloaf's third solo album. His first two albums made little impact, but Bat had wings, selling millions of copies, not just upon its release, but also for many years later, mostly through catalog sales. It's a good song, and I don't want to really dissect the the vocals of this song because they speak for themselves. But I'll tell you what I think made this song so successful, and it's it's something I'd like to see come back in optimism in people again, and that is that in the 70s and 80s, despite the troubles we had, especially those of us who were listening to this album, who were teenagers and young 20-somethings, believed that no matter where we were, we could do something great. We could do something great. And even though that's not what the song's about, that's what the feeling of this music is about. It's triumphant. It's different. It's amazing. And that's, I, I, I think that, like, you can look at the stuff I talked about today and you can feel some gloom and doom if you want to. Or you could have that same feeling because the 70s and 80s weren't exactly a great time economically in the country. They really weren't. The time, the 80s, I'm talking about early 80s. They just weren't. But there was a belief that there was something amazing we could all do. And we did. If you look at what happened after the 80s, the 90s and the early 2000s, the, 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 the new age of technology, amazing things happened. We lost something. We lost the spirit that was in this music. Running around in old cars. Doing what kids do. I mean, that's that's the brilliance in this music. These songs hit a nerve with young people in the 70s and 80s, and I believe continued to do so because they were about real life. They were about real life and done in a very unique way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his mouth? Yes. Will he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. Again. 
Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And will he starve without me? Yes. Then does he love me? Yes. Yes. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys.